you're listening to I Might Be Wrong, a podcast hosted by myself, Rich Needham, and my co-host, Henry Salmon. Welcome, you're listening to I Might Be Wrong. I'm here, Henry's here, and we've got Pat back. How are you doing, Pat? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Thanks for having me back. I'm good, I'm good. I'm right. One of us is sitting here sweating because he's been out on a charity bike ride, and you can probably guess who from previous chats. How are you, Henry? Yeah, I'm just kind of... Uh, adjusting to zero miles per hour rather than riding as fast as I can through nettles and brambles. Um, I'm I'm actually covered in blood. Look, there's my arm. It's all bleeding. And um, yeah, <laughs> and I'm stung to bits. So I've had a lovely time, it, weirdly. It's kind of cool, but uh, I'm tired. So if you hear any munching, I'll try and mute the cereal, but there may be <laughs> cereal related crunching noises in the background. So I'll do my best to keep that down. Nice. And my arm is also bleeding from uh, scrubbing the patio today, so uh, slightly lower tempo injuries, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we've got a theme for the pod already. Come on, Rich. Bl- blood, sweat and tears on this podcast. <laughs> I am not bleeding, but I did about half an hour ago help one of my neighbours. Uh, I've got a lovely couple across the road called Rob and Carol who are a little older than I am, and I helped them get their fridge freezer from 1981 out of their front door for the council to pick up and if you've ever tried lugging white goods from that era they're not light yeah that's that's actually quite impressive um probably lead lined fridge or something something ridiculous like that yeah so i have got a little bit of exercise in but i suspect losing to both of you we should talk music because that's why we're here pat you have brought an album and a, a band who are very very iconic from the late 90s well most of the 90s actually although i always think of them as a kind of mid to late 90s band who who have you brought so you know, this came out of a discussion around the uh, frengas episode and um we're talking today about the cranberries and i guess focusing slightly on the to the fatal departed which was uh, the 1996 album which was the first i really properly heard of them another uh, good experimental uh, christmas present from my dad there dropping me a good album and yes it was one of those albums where I loved basically all of the songs on it and it pushed me to explore the back catalogue and then follow the career going forwards and stuff as well so it was a big part of my mid to late teenage years into my 20s how how often did you get random CD Christmas presents and how many of them were successful? I mean, it was hit and miss, but he tried to do one every birthday and Christmas, <laughs> I'd say. So I uh, got things like Mezzanine, Massive Attack, uh, nice. Republica, that sort of stuff. So yeah, Fatboy Slim, I think, was one of them as well. So yeah, it was all good, interesting stuff. I think at the time, I didn't appreciate it as obviously as I do now and he's certainly got more uh, like active appreciation from my sister so that's uh, where the uh, effort went going forward nice but that's that's awesome your dad's got great taste in music yeah and he hides it because otherwise mum throws his cds out of the car that <laughs> <laughs> sounds like you and lizzie henry <laughs> yeah that happens too um, although i have zero control over the car's radio so um just makes life much easier <laughs> <laughs> all right so Tell us a bit about the Cranberries. Uh, Most people who know the Cranberries will be aware of their lead singer, mostly because of how iconic and incredible her voice is. Yeah, and actually they were formed in 1989 without her. So the original lineup was uh, Noel Hogan and Mike Hogan brothers, uh, Fergal Lawler, and the lead singer was Niall Quinn, who presumably was too busy scoring goals to Sunderland to carry on with the group. (laughs) So um, yeah, Dolores replaced him 
prior to the first album coming out in 93, which is Everyone Else Is Doing It, Why Can't We? Really, the songwriting and the iconic sound of the way she uses her voice and the almost religious choral type music, there's a lot of organs and a lot of plagal type harmonies in there. That was brought in with her background, I think. It's that sound that's really distinctive throughout all of the albums and all the different tones that they set. Yeah, it's very Celtic in sound in terms of, I would associate that style of singing more with Celtic folk necessarily than rock. I think that's fair. And you know, one of the things that's consistent across the albums is the real emotional range. You know, they can go from like really strongly uplifting to passionately angry and pushing for something to really almost like disdainful and disgusted and it's the emotional range is huge and that's what really grabs me certainly about the first three or four albums and the music is very political it's always been very political hasn't it yes and certainly um to the faithful departed is very strong in that so we have war child which is probably my favorite song which is a really kind of poignant song about the innocent victims of war and there's a track, the final track on the album is called Bosnia, which, you know, it's about the former Yugoslavian war that was going on at the time. And I got this album along with um, Zolata's Diary at the same birthday or Christmas, I can't remember which it was. So it's one of those, you're kind of reading it and listening to it and realising how fortunate you are to be living somewhere fairly calm and safe and what could be going on to you at the same time in your life if you were less lucky geographically yeah. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting to see which bands do stand up and sing about stuff like that because a lot of very popular bands will just kind of shy away from it. They don't want to sit on a, you know, on either side of the political fence. So they'll just they'll just carry on making music. But these guys, you can tell straight away. I mean, you know, you've got Bosnia in, in the title of your song. That's 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 they're, they're clearly going to make make a stand, and it's quite cool that they've they've gone for that. And and yeah, you're right. The emotion that they put into it, they they're not doing this by half measure they're not doing it just to let's make a record about bosnia they're they're serious about this stuff yeah and i do think there's an element with their music that it's very heavily colored by the irish troubles in the same way that u2's early work particularly stuff like sunday bloody sunday has a lot of the elements in there but whereas u2 sort of moved away from that and more into just the general mainstream as they got bigger and bigger there's the Cranberries seem to have stuck with that theme of war's really shit, can we please stop doing it now? Yeah, it's it's a, it's a common theme. And a common theme across multiple of the songs is the kind of Irish Catholic society, the way it treats young girls, women, and um, the effect that that has on an intelligent, compassionate woman trying to make her way and shape the world like she feels like it should be. And you you hear that from very early on in the very first album. The song Pretty seems to be like a a calling out for the people who've just said, oh, you know, you're you're so nice. If only you're a little bit quieter and more biddable and less um, (laughs) putting your foot down and shouting for what you want and what you think is right. I suspect that's as much, you know, from life and education as well as when you're trying to get into the record industry early. It'd be very easy to be channeled as an attractive young female singer down a certain path. And, you know, they've always stuck to principles in terms of, no, we're going to sing about the difficult things and do it the way we want to do it. Yeah. And 
she was only what 21 22 when they were recording and releasing that debut album and it, it, it's an incredible debut as well i mean we will come on to talking about the music in a bit but tracks like dreams on there they feel like a band in their pomp yes it's an absolutely beautiful track dreams really uplifting and soars into the chorus in a way that just fills your heart it's really great and there's a tendency in some of the later albums for the tracks that are trying to do the similar thing to get quite twee and saccharine, but this one really stays the line of just being pure and uplifting. It's one of my favourites. Yeah. I'm, I'm a huge fan of Linger, which I think oh, yes. was one of the first songs to get popular with them because it, it got a lot of airplay. It appeared on the radio quite a bit, and and there's something about the the hook. The chorus does just stick in your head. That That's what introduced me to the Cranberries. I was going to say that's the same for me. I certainly was hearing this track an awful lot on the radio around that time and just that chorus and her voice and Pat you've alluded to already the amount of emotion and passion that she gets into her voice and into her lyrics and brings to the fore of these songs just really grabbed me and I realized while we were talking about doing this, that I've never owned a Cranberries album, and yet some of these songs are so incredibly important and so incredibly intrinsically linked to my teenage years that it's totally amazing to me that I haven't ever owned an album. So some people who are listening might not actually be aware of this, but about three years ago, so January 2018, O'Riordan passed away, and I remember hearing that on the way home and sticking Zombie on to have a listen to it and just being in floods of tears on a train ride from central to south London and just not caring that people must have thought I looked like a madman. It was it was really genuinely emotional because she was so heavily linked to that part of my teenage years. Yeah, it was very it was an unexpected shock and perhaps it shouldn't have been had I know a little bit more about what was going on in the background than I do now, than I did then, I should say. It's um, but it's, it's tragic when you lose someone and something from your life that things like that seem permanent, you know. It's like with competitive athletes. You don't consider them as normal people. They're like these superheroes. So when you feel, you suddenly realise that they're mortal and just like everyone else, it hits you that bit harder, you know. It, it reminded me of... Um, when Kirsty McCall had that tragic accident and that was just all of a sudden gone. And it, it hits you a lot harder than you'd expect. Yeah, and she was only 46 at the time and it's genuinely, genuinely tragic story. But yeah, the, the I think it's mostly how hard it hit me was something that I I just wasn't expecting it. There's there's a big gap in them with their music finishing and me probably not listening to them at all. And then them being back in the news a lot and off the back of her death there's been a, all sorts of kind of reviews I guess in the press and um, and it's in some ways it's a bit bit sad they've just been kind of almost lost as a band and then suddenly it takes a someone dying to realise what you've lost Right and the tributes to her were from a huge range of massive names so you've got you know obviously the likes of Bono and Sinead O'Connor, you'd be unsurprised to hear paying tribute, but Johnny Depp, Nick Cave, guys from Duran Duran, Julian Lennon, Mark Lanigan, just huge names, R.E.M., Michael Stipe, that were all paying tribute. And 
it just goes to show how influential their music has been on so many people over the years. Absolutely. You mentioned Zombie, which is probably the most well-known track, do you think? Yeah, yeah I think so. From No Need to No Argue in 1994, that is a phenomenal album. There's a track called Empty on it, which is a really short little track, but the power of the almost outro, it's just her singing the word empty in a really kind of high-pitched, pure note, and it, it, it it's a wonderful piece. The, the range that she has is fantastic and you could give her I think it, give her any song she'd sing it brilliantly um, she's a wonderful vocalist and the way that she can alter her pitch very quickly she can stir up emotions and, and I think you're right I think your point earlier about Celtic music it seems like it's it's almost trained in that kind of Celtic style yeah I want to talk a bit about Zombie I know we're not talking about tracks quite yet but more around the the way they approach writing that song that really shines a light on how they thought about the music and politics and all that stuff being very interwoven rather than you know it's it's sort of we're on the sidelines singing about this stuff it's no we want to be involved in talking about this stuff and being part of this discussion so zombie was written in response to the death of jonathan bell and tim parry who were three and 12 years old who were killed in the ira bombing in warrington 56 others injured some seriously apparently they'd gone shopping to buy mother's day cards in a busy city center area and i read and said we were on a tour bus and i was near the location where it happened so it really struck me hard i was quite young but i remember being devastated about the innocent children being pulled into that kind of thing so i suppose that's why i was saying it's not me because even though i'm irish it wasn't me i didn't do it being irish it was quite hard especially in the uk when there was so much tension i remember i'd come home after a night out i'd sat down with my guitar and started strumming those chords and the chorus just came out really fast then i found it very easy to write lyrics when i was younger because i had no inhibitions they just came pouring out i find as i get older it's more difficult you develop fears and you go what will people think of this but it's important not to think too much about what people think because then you'll never write when it was recorded with stephen street and i heard it back i thought well that's catchy but i didn't have any idea at the time that would be so successful and that's the thing it's one of those songs that almost just floods out of an artist a band and you never realise at the time quite what you're doing, but you listen to this musically. It's it's really cleverly constructed. There's you know that massive guitarzy, bassy drumming intro, and then it goes quiet when she's doing storytelling bits. It floods into like huge emotion in the in the chorus. It's just I think it's a masterpiece. I'll back you up on that. I think it's a great song. I think it's a really really good song. It's funny how tastes change because for me. Back in the day when it was released, I loved the guitars and the real noise and the kind of, yeah, there's loads of noise. I'm going to turn the speakers up. But now I appreciate the voice more and the vocals and the storytelling. So, and because she's got both, it's a song that can endure probably quite a lot longer than others can. And it feels timeless. Yes, absolutely. It's interesting the different ways you can have of saying, why are you being arseholes? Stop being arseholes. You know, this is a very <laughs> angry, just all of you, be better people. And we talked about it on the David Ford episode, the song Stephen, about a kid who died in Porter Down in similar, you know, similar troubles. That is done in a very, it's more of a kind of scholarly 
head teacher disciplinary sort of way than a angry embittered kind of early 20s person sort of way but it's it's different angles on the same sort of message of what you're doing is clearly unacceptable and I can't understand how you can justify your behaviour and continue your behaviour. We need to all be better as a society, which is a powerful message. Yeah, completely agree with that. And I think, again, that's part of what really pulled me into into the music. So we should talk about the album that you have decided that you want to focus on for this one. Where should people start in terms of listening to this album? You mentioned a couple of tracks already, but let's dive in. Yeah, start at the start. So the first track, Hollywood, is a really fast, powerful, big-hitting track. comes in with really big guitars and um, the kind of haunting choral vocals over the top of that. It's a really good track around, like, the expectations of... Well, I'm, I'm interpreting it, but I guess it's like the expectations of an artist in an industry and the differences between how you're actually treated and how it actually works out and, um, you know, calling out certain people within that industry to be better, I suppose. Does it sound, in your opinion, like a kind of continuation of their previous two albums or is this, do they change tack with the way that they sound? I think the tone is pretty consistent, to be honest. They're only two years apart, so you wouldn't expect a major change. It doesn't really change until Bury the Hatchet, which is a couple of years after that one. Yeah, cool. Other tracks that people should dive into here? Um, as I said, War Child's my favourite. Mm-hmm. It's not one of the really big, loud, rocky ones. It's more of a poignant one, I guess. But it's a track that's just, I would say, hauntingly beautiful in, in the way it presents its message. And it'll it leaves a big impact if you're in that right frame of mind. It's a bit quieter, and her vocals are a bit quieter. So rather than with Zombie, where you're very much being presented very, very much up front with, you need to listen to this, this almost sucks you in to listen to it by being quieter and a bit more underspoken. Yeah, absolutely. And then it kind of swells into this really meaningful chorus. And the crescendo actually just emphasises the point, I think. And, you know, if you have everything dialed up to 11 all the time, it's hard to make that emphasis in your song. So mm-hmm. it's it's nicely done. And then it leads into um, Forever Yellow Skies, which is just a full-out everything up to 11 for two minutes frantic song. So if you need that rock in your life, it's not far away. <laughs> I like that. I like the do something quiet to bring everything just to a, just to a little moment and then going full pelt again. Yeah, and they can because they've got the skill and the the kind of the attitude to to make it pay off. Some bands, you listen to an album and they'll drop in a quiet, mellow song, and it just kind of feels like they're just doing albums by numbers. But this doesn't feel like that. Yeah, there's another track on here that grabbed me uh, partly because of the name, but also partly because it actually is quite a belter. Which is, I just shot John Lennon. Not a cheery one, but another one where they've dropped the tempo of the track before and then raised the tempo for this one and then dropped the tempo for the next one. So it's the it's the punch between two sort of slightly mellow ones. Yeah, and it basically lyrically does exactly what you'd expect. Yeah, and it does that classic Sex Pistol thing in I Fought the Law where they use a, dr- a drum shot as a gunshot. Yeah, always a nice touch. Got any others? I think we should mention Free to Decide because it's quite a subsumed track almost, but there's a lyric in the chorus, I'm free to decide that I'm not so suicidal after all. And when you know how the rest of her life has gone, and she's had um, bipolar diagnosis in her life as well, so you can almost feel 
with the different tones in the different songs in the album, it expresses how the different tones in the different days of her life are, I think. And that's, it's more poignant now than it was the first time I listened to it, certainly. Yeah. And this is surprisingly long as an album. 13 songs and 52 minutes, which is longer than your average album back then. Do you feel like the full album holds up to that that track listing in length? There's absolutely no tracks I'd skip. You know, it, it, it takes you to different places. It ends with a track called Bosnia. We've talked about it already. But it ends with a kind of... Um, it slows right down and just fades out into like a child's music box. And that just plays you out very quietly. But like, you know what it's saying. You're, it's saying a child has died and this is all that's left behind as a casualty of war. And that's, you know, that's, it's, a, it's a powerful end to an album, I think. And... Um, I'm pretty sure the same thing happened at the end of one of the Mad Max films, which is uh, an unexpected parallel. <laughs> nice. All brilliant films, by the way. Just we're going to head off onto that. That that re- <laughs> apparently another one's being being made. But oh, the good. most recent one was great. Watch it. Great fun. Oh, Fury Road is awesome. Yeah. I think possibly my favourite all of all of them. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's potentially, not too it's a brilliant film. Anyway, we'll, we'll save that for um, I might be right. Our <laughs> film podcast, which is yet to be made, never going to happen. <laughs> it's never going to happen. I'm not editing more podcasts. It's a good recommendation though, because I never saw Fury Road <gasps> on the basis of I'm suspicious of remakes of not remakes, but you know, I think reboots of things. I was suspicious. I loved the first ones, and it easily matches them go and watch it that is my recommendation done i'm with henry i will add to that i was suspicious and then i saw how angry right-wing american misogynist idiots were and that spurred me to go and see it that's always a good indicator yeah yeah all right so you've said after you'd listened to this album you went back and explored their back catalogue we've mentioned already the debut and their second album everybody else is doing it so why can't we and no need to argue We've picked out the big songs from there, but there's got to be other stuff that people should probably listen to that's less well-known. I think we might have missed Ode to My Family, which is on No Need to Argue. And that's that's an absolute cracker. Um, I think it was it must have been released because it's, it's one that I think is quite well-known. Yeah, it's got a really good music video to it. Oh, really? What's, what happens? Well, it's just um, kind of screenshots of um, Irish life interspersed with the band doing the bandy sort of things. Awesome. Not full on the... Um, Dolores spray painted gold in front of a cross <laughs> with very subtle religious imagery and um, children painted silver around her, which is the video for, I've forgotten which one, probably Zombie actually. I think Linga was picked up on MTV and became a huge MTV hit, which is, I think that's where they started to kind of snowball their career from. Well, Linga was perfectly timed because it was right in that early to mid 90s MTV peak when MTV still played just music videos all the time and it was wonderful the pre-jackass days <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah on the subject of uh, the music videos there's a track on No Need to Argue called Ridiculous Thoughts which is one of my favourites just because of the way that comes out with the Irish accent and that, that's one of the nicest things is the accent is consistent throughout all of the songs so it's nice to hear that and not to have it kind of subsuming just kind of generic american but in the video of ridiculous thoughts there's um a very young elijah wood pottering around doing his acting thing 
Really? Ah, Amazing. Good factoid. I'm going to drag us a little bit back to the debut because I want to touch briefly on the end to that album because Put Me Down is just a wonderful, haunting, beautiful track and a wonderful way to finish an album. You're right. Put Me Down is one of the... um the kind of slower, more thoughtful ones, mm. but it is a really nice outro to the album and a big change in tone to the outro to some of the others. So the outro to No Need to Argue is the title track, No Need to Argue, and that's a kind of a minor key punch around, you know, a relationship breaking up and the effect that has on everyone involved, really, I suppose. But it's uh, equally powerful in different ways. And, you know, we've, we've said it before, it's the range of emotions they can make you feel within a single album, yeah. within a single set of songs is really large. Yep. And I do think from these first three albums, all released in the early 90s, and all three of them have tracks on that are still played on the radio today which just is incredible that they've managed to stand the test of time so well. Yeah. One thing we haven't covered is their career post this album. So did you stick with them and listen to more of their work after this? I got the next couple of albums. So we have Bury the Hatchet in 98 and Wake Up and Smell the Coffee in 2001. And there's still some very strong, powerful songs on each of those albums, but increasingly there's a number that I found quite, kind of naff and twee and so it just my passion for them ebbed I guess but I would say that from Bury the Hatchet there's a track called Shattered which is definitely worth a listen and there's a track kind of hidden towards the end called Fee Fi Fo which is about um, well um, it's about child abuse and asking a child abuser how can you do what you do and it's, I think, based on real-life experience, although it's something that she didn't talk about very much, obviously. But reading about it afterwards, it kind of... It clicks into place a lot of the themes and a lot of the mental torment that you see throughout the albums. That, you know, if you've got that sort of trauma in your background, it's perhaps no wonder that you end up with depression and bipolar issues and all that sort of things and the tragic way things ended you can kind of see where it's come from yeah yeah it's not it's not the first band we've touched on talking about this stuff and i don't think it'll be the last but yeah it is always incredibly sad when you realize how much of the beauty in the songs that you enjoy from an artist are created by pain in their past yes yes it's it's hard to know how much could have been there without that, but we'll never know. Right. Yeah. So, have you seen them live, I think, is the next question we always ask. I have not seen them live. And to be honest, the they have some live versions of songs on some of the albums, and it didn't fill me with, oh, I must rush out and see these live, because I don't know whether it's the ones they've chosen or just like, the way they always are, but there's one that they've chosen which is hugely out of tune. Oh, and God. you think, like, <laughs> why would you choose that as the live version of the track that you put on your album? It doesn't make sense. Yeah, that's not ideal. But I guess some bands will see that as, well, this is the raw experience type thing, and it's not always perfect, but you're getting a lot of the kind of punchy emotion. I don't know, maybe. Well, 
I don't know, maybe it's just some marketing guy that's gone, oh, we got some audio of that live performance. Let's throw it in and make someone pay another pound for it or something. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you, you do get that the crowd's really into it, so that kind of makes it, I suppose. And I guess with the way these are sung, it makes that bit more difference as well. Like, you know, Blink-182 being somewhere out of tune, whatever. It's not going to make a massive <laughs> impact on the potency of the song, but... If you're trying to sing, I think it was Promises, and you mispitch those crystal clear emotion-filled notes, somehow it, it's it's that bit more detracting from the song. Yeah, when you've got someone with such an incredible voice, when they miss, it can actually be more obvious and a bit more nails on chalkboardy when it happens. I totally agree with that. When you see um, live performances of pop stars in particular who are often auto-tuned and they're not and you hear their actual voice that's when you can tell and it really great i mean obviously some of the, the the best ones out there kylie taylor swift they can just smash it out of the park but there are others who you hear and you think this is awful and they try to do the falsetto and it doesn't work and and, and i think you're right rich they're um when when you have that that skill um whether it's put together by a computer or whether it's natural but it doesn't come across on a live version then that's a that's a problem yeah have you seen them live i haven't uh no and and actually i I was thinking about this i don't think i've ever seen them on a bill for a festival or a gig that i would have gone to and i don't know whether that's my brain just kind of ignoring them in a bit like the same way that you said i've not bought an album I haven't either, even though at the same time I love their songs. So I've got probably about five compilation albums with Cranberries tracks on, which yep. I really enjoy listening to. So again, it's it's a bit weird. And I haven't no, haven't seen them live. Yeah, you saying that, that's exactly where they are for me. Shine 5 and Shine 7 both have Cranberries tracks on that I absolutely adore. And I yeah. think that's where I've probably ended up sticking them. I think the problem was that they were just huge in that early to mid 90s period. And by the time I was starting to go to gigs from sort of 2000-ish onwards, they weren't really visible. They weren't like Ash, where they just stuck around and <laughs> were determined to turn up at every festival, regardless of whether people wanted them there or not. Yeah. I, I love Ash, just to be clear. How about uh, inspirations? Listening to this music, did it lead you in certain directions? It led me into... Well, I don't know what it led me into... I got up the Pogues at a similar time. Mm-hmm. I think it led me into Christy Moore. Well, both of them together led me into Christy Moore. And he's a kind of older, more folky singer-songwriter. But the themes of anti-abuses of power and trying to stand up for the rights of the common man against the establishments of church and state... Those ring true, and he's got this kind of lyrical poetry to his work that is really, really powerful. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think for me, it's the political lyricism and to an extent, beautiful, furious female voices. So people like Skunk and Nancy as well with skin there really sort of got me interested in more female voices, having probably just had my listening dominated by male voices just because that's what the late 80s and early 90s were if you weren't into pop music yeah that's fair yeah you you mentioned skunk and anti probably one of my kind of favorite of the not quite mainstream 
indie bands out there. Skin's voice is so good and she's so striking. She's she's like she's beautiful. She's kick ass. And she was doing this at a time when there weren't that many beautiful and kick ass women on stage. I remember my parents walking in to a Skunk and Nancy performance on Top of the Pops and they walked into the room and both of them were like, who, who is this band? <laughs> they're, they're incredible. And my parents don't do that very often. So yeah, that was a big thumbs up. But yeah, the Cranberries do a similar thing. Yeah. Cool. We should probably call it on that note. Thank you again for joining us, Pat. It's always great to have you on. Uh, appreciate you talking us through an artist that we both love, but don't necessarily know well enough. <laughs> Pleasure as always. Thanks for joining us. Henry and I will be back soon enough with more chat and nonsense and hopefully we'll get pat back on sometime in the near future cheers guys cheers thank you for listening to another episode of i might be wrong